Hello and welcome to another episode of the Kids Media Club podcast. I'm Andy Williams. Hi, and I'm Joe Redfern. And oh, look, we've got a special guest today. It's Candice, my spirit animal, and also favourite of our fellow host, Emily. Hi, guys. My name is Emily Horgan. I'm an independent media consultant, and I am very excited that there is a reboot of Phineas and Ferb that has been announced. Oh. Um, one of my favourite shows. I literally made my husband watch it on our first date. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, listen, the question is, can we find anything new in kids media? But the reemergence of Phineas and Ferb is something to be celebrated. I don't care. I'm just going to I'm not even going to have I'm not even going to doubt my my happiness about this with any no. sort of strategic thoughts about the future of IP. I'm just going to put down the crayons and get excited. Absolutely. There can never be too much Phineas and Ferb in the world. And Dr. Doofenshmirtz, who remains also one of my heroes. In fact, we've got our own Dr. Doofenshmirtz here, Andy. What do you think? <laughs> what do you think of Phineas and Ferb? I, I love Phineas and Ferb. I mean, I think, so I, I ended up working in Disney in promos. And so we did many a, a trailer and a promo for Phineas and Ferb. How many episodes are they recommissioning? Do we know? I think, is it something around 100 episodes? I think I read. How exciting. I mean, it's just, it's just such a smart show. Like I remember, again, this is the story of my first date with my husband and I was like, so it's 11 minutes. And basically <laughs> these two boys can do anything and they can invent anything. And so they do that while their sister tries to get them caught by their mom. But in the meantime, their pet platypus, Perry, is a special agent. And generally what happens is, his nemesis, Doofenshmirtz, comes up with something that cancels out what Phineas and Ferb have done by the time Candace gets her mom to see them and, 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 and to bust them in 11 minutes. <laughs> and with the best theme tune of any animated show on TV. I had a great thing too. And it, it was an, that was an interesting time, I think, for Disney because they were being kind of a bit more experimental than they had been up to that point. Mm -hmm. And there was an element where they were... You know, they were seeing what Cartoon Network were doing or what Nickelodeon were doing, and they were kind of playing within that space, um, particularly with something like Phineas and Ferb, I thought. Yeah, but they did it in a Disney way, right? And I think that's... Really? They do well when they kind of, you know, they don't... They see the, they see the trend. They see, like, all the Cartoon Network stuff at the time was great. Then Nickelodeon had SpongeBob. They had the kind of off-the-wall animation, mm. animated series, comedy that were doing great. But Disney kind of, like, Phineas and Ferb is still very much a Disney show. You you wouldn't really put it down as a Cartoon Network or really a Nick show. Like, the heart of it, you know, the the character, the lovability of the characters, the relate the relatability and stuff like that. I mean, I, I'm not really sure who relates to being, you know, a sea sponge. But, you know, <laughs> it's just, it, it's done in a really Disney way. And I love it when they get that right. When they get that right, it's, it's, it's rock and feel. Yeah, and I think what was interesting, what's interesting in that show is it has all of those core Disney kind of principles informing it, yet it looked very different from another Disney show. The, you know, Phineas and Ferb are kind of striking character designs that you didn't yeah. see in, um, in other Disney um, series. It's, it, it, it really, like you say, it, it's like they looked at what, the others were doing with Cartoon Network and, and, you know, they were doing with SpongeBob and Adventure Time and those kind of way out. But then somebody found the Disney-ness, the Disney way of doing that. doesn't feel like they've done it since, to be fair, but actually they found the Disney way of doing it. And like you say, it's it's out there, but in a Disney way. And, and that really, I think, is 
made it stand out. And to, 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 to start us off on our first kind of point, we were discussing just before we were recording, this kind of dearth of new, you know, are we losing the brave um, kind of, you know, that, that courage to go out there with something new? And unfortunately, I think with Disney's Strange World that didn't work, you know, that was a real misfire. Is that going to mean they're going to rain back from that that brave kind of trying something new. Okay, you know, we're, we're, we're quite happy that they are bringing back Phineas and Ferb, but we've discussed why it was brave at the time. Do we think that we're in this era where everybody's playing it safe? Do you want to go first, Andy? We're like literally like, Arr. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think that we are, there's definitely a kind of more of a safety first um, aspect. So I think some of the, ways people are approaching commissioning so we've had netflix i think the impression i get is particularly for kids stuff on netflix that they're very they're going for a very safety first commissioning process yeah. so yeah, they're um they're not looking for something that's maybe distinctive or completely different from what everyone else is doing they they're looking to kind of to do shows that are pretty similar to to what other people are doing and hope that they they can also kind of attract an audience, but they're playing it pretty safe. Um, and I think that attitude definitely feels like it's carried over into a lot of the other studios and, and networks. I do wonder if it, the one that jumps out as perhaps trying things slightly different might be Apple, that they've yeah. not done a huge amount of kid stuff, but Lovely Little Farm felt like it was, you know, it, it wasn't too mainstream in the sense that it wasn't a copycat of what the rest yeah. were doing. Um, so, you know, maybe they're trying to find their own little niche. But what do you think, Emily? Are we are we moving away from being brave and courageous with kids commissioning and programming? Do you know, I think it needs to be when it's done right, it needs to be a mix. And but it needs to be a mix done right. So, you know, um, I think uh, like Disney, Disney have found themselves in a bit of a, in a bit of a difficult situation right now. I can't believe that it's the start of 2023, and they are fighting to be the number two global animation studio when we're, talk, when we're talking about movies specifically. Um, mm. Lightyear didn't have a good reception, and that is that isn't new IP, right? So I that's mean. it, not done right. Strange World has been underwhelming, is you know the pervading word when you think about that. Um, so. I think, you know, it, it, it's totally understandable that studios would have that, get that mix right of a bit of new and a bit of old. And I think if you look at somewhere like DreamWorks uh, and Illumination, who are both owned by parent company NBC, you, um, you know, they, they do, they're, they're getting this kind of right right now. So they had the bad guys in spring of this year. I think spring was still a bit covid right? So it wasn't, mm -hmm. didn't necessarily set the world alight. But it did, you know, but it did decent. It did decent. You know, it was, it was heralded at the time as of, look, the cinema's starting to, it's breathing. Uh, <laughs> um, and then more recently, obviously, Puss in Boots, uh, the, 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 uh, the, a Puss in Boots sequel has been, has been released, The Last Wish. And that's actually doing really, really well in cinemas. And it's kind of like, it's, it seems to have a pretty, a pretty clear run over Christmas in cinemas. They've just gone for it. And, mm. and it's really paying off. It's on, it's on, it's on trajectory, at least in the US. Um, to, to, it's definitely going to pass light year, whether it captures all of 
the combined Disney animated budget, uh, animated revenue for 2022 of Lightyear and Strange World. Uh, yeah, it's kind of looking like it might go that way. Um, it's got a nice long tail. You know, people are still, even though it's, I think it's available and, you know, it had a short window to various uh, VOD, you know, PVODs, etc. People are still like, hey, yeah, let's go see a family movie in the cinema. Like, it sounds fun. Like, you know, something to pick you up in January. So the mix, I think, is really important of getting it and, and the right mix and getting, and I, I suppose the key thing is, getting the hits right so that mm-hmm. if you're taking you know if you're if you're taking a risk on something new the thing that you're putting out that's old or a rework uh, or derivative is works <laughs> yeah. because otherwise you end up like disney in, in this year where like you didn't work and and they're kind of between quite a difficult place um they have been bringing out so much new like pixar has been new for ages we haven't had a sequel for i don't know like five or six years right they're looking to bring out inside out the sequel Mm. Candice is agreeing um, they're looking to bring out the Inside Out sequel I think uh, is it next year or, or early in the following year so you know we, we need to wait and see about that Like, but Pixar have been like quite brave you know they've, they've, yeah. they've you know it's been um, Soul Luca you know all this IP that's been really really fresh turning red um, and arguably uh, Walt Disney Animation Studios too they had Encanto so you know I think I think the mix needs to be right you know and again mm. Apple TV yeah, little farm, uh, but they also have all the all the peanuts, right? They have all the Snoopy stuff. Yeah. So, like that mix, I think is key, and like getting it, like getting it all like right. I mean, it's not mm. easy, but that's kind of um, that's kind of the the key thing for me. I think that that needs yeah. to be done right. There's an alchemy to it, isn't there? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you think with Strange World that some of the responsibility for kind of the fact that it didn't really hit? Um, rest with the marketing of that movie because i i just don't remember any of the marketing for it and i wonder whether maybe the turmoil of the changeover at the top at disney meant that some of the some of this stuff hasn't been kind of firing on all cylinders yeah and i think that you know the communication of new is so much more difficult than the communication of something that has that pre-existing awareness you know you stick minions on a poster and most people are going to know that's a minion but when you've got something like Strange World, you have to work so much harder. And I do wonder if Disney perhaps took their eye off the ball with that. You know, you need compelling assets, compelling visuals that, you know, most of the, the key art that I saw for Strange World told me very little about it. The, I, I wasn't overly enamored with the character designs. There were too many of them. You know, what was it telling me about this movie that was going to make me want to know more. There was very little that made me want to know more. And I think that was the, the misstep. Uh, and and yeah. that it in turn makes the marketing and promotion of it, as you say, Andy, it kind of washes over you just, you know, and, and it becomes so bland as to, to disappear. So I think that was a, a real shame. And, and it is my worry that then it sets back other new ideas in favour of, low risk reboots and, and, and spin-offs yeah I'm not sure maybe they did they take, did they take their eye off the ball or did they look at the ball and go ew <laughs> like do you know what I mean <laughs> like uh, like because I know Strange World hasn't yeah. been very well reviewed I'm not, 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 not nowhere near this you kind of like <laughs> yeah, everyone, everyone let's not look at the ball I looked at it once and it didn't look good so we're just gonna let it land where it has. yeah um <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Like it's it it is tough, and like we think of Netflix, what's doing well there in terms of series like Coco Melon, Little Angel, all the YouTube stuff, Sonic Prime, that new series has done pretty well. Um, 
But then, you know, they brought out the Sea Beast and they're bringing out a sequel to that. So that was like, that was Brave New IP. And I, I'm delighted to hear they're doing a series, a sequel to that. I thought it was a really good movie. And I'm, yeah. I, I just like to see Netflix play in that space a bit more because, mm. you know, w- where we've seen them do that in, in the past is limited. I think they're right to double down. It's a cool world, some cool characters. And it's a bit different and it's very them. I think, well, how did you, how did you sum it up? They zag. It's a kind of the sea beast was a bit yeah, zaggy. It wasn't like the zaggiest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. And kind of Pinocchio definitely was kind of uh, zagging to kind of the to Disney. Fantastic. Yeah, mm. and like Pinocchio's, you know, Pinocchio's up for like we got the Golden Globe. It's hotly tipped for the Oscar um, award, um, the Oscar award, the Academy Award, um, and that's very zaggy. And it did, it did see good. It did see good. It did see good consumption. Um, I just. I don't know how long, how much, how commercial Pinocchio would be in terms of like a, a really broad, re- repeatable audience. Although I thoroughly enjoyed it as a grown up, um, yeah. and, and would re- would definitely revisit it and would recommend other people do. But I wouldn't necessarily, you know, if I was having a, if I was having friends around and we wanted to keep the kids quiet for two hours, not sure I'd put it on. You know, it's a bit, yeah. it's a bit intense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the rise of fascism in, in Spain as a backdrop to Pinocchio, maybe. <laughs> Isn't kind of exactly what you're looking for for a six-year-old. Maybe it is. Yeah, I would agree with that. It feels like it's a it, it, it's a one watch. Beautiful though it is, but again, you know, going back to the marketing, I'm seeing it everywhere. So they're really ramping up the pre-Oscars buzz. I can't open mm. Twitter without seeing it at least twice. So uh, yeah, they they they're going for it with that one. I think for the Oscar. And maybe Pinocchio yeah. is an example of if you want to kind of capture those eyeballs, you've. I mean, I know Pinocchio is kind of an existing property, but it feels like that's far more about the director and the creator that kind of brings yes. it around to that show. 100%. And maybe and maybe Sea Beast. There's an opportunity for Netflix to develop that creator as somebody that people kind of return to his movies. Well, Chris Williams is already like that guy, right? So he yeah. like he worked on Moana, he worked on um, Bolt, I think, you know. So, but yeah, like doubling them down and having Netflix be the home of somebody like that, you know, and and, and that being a signature of theirs, I think is is in their interest. But but maybe it's the rise of social media, but kind of Bolt and the stuff that he did at Disney. It feels like not many people would have clearly been aware that he was the creator of it outside of. Yeah. Um, but now with social media, you've, you've got, you know, that he's active on Instagram or Twitter. And so he starts to kind of develop that relationship with the audience that, mm. you know, that maybe Netflix can kind of leverage. I mean, you know, parallels with the influencer proliferation at the moment and the power that they're having. You know, we I talk a lot about Mr. Beast and Sidemen and how they're becoming huge creative businesses in their own right, whether they're selling hydration drinks or, you know, Mr. Beast getting into content creation, which seems to be on the offing. You know, it, it's a similar principle with those directors, you know, Guillermo del Toro. You have him attached to attached to a movie or, you know, a subsequent slate of kids TV series. Uh, and and that's something that someone like Netflix can leverage hugely. Yeah, it's another discovery path, right? So like that's the mm-hmm. thing. It's like we're all so deluged with so much content that finding a way of making sure that it's something you want to watch is difficult. And having a signature of a creator on there that you know and building and you know making the effort to build creators to be known, you know, is is is, is a discovery path for content for sure. 
Um, I do lament the role of the curator in all of this. Like, you know, this is the person who doesn't make any good stuff, but who has a good taste for good stuff. I think that's yeah. something that we we miss a little bit in algorithms. Um, but yeah, but the, like building a creator um, to, to, to have that kind of bankable audience is, is in everybody's interest for sure. Mm. And in terms of um, kind of going back to the point with new IP, you know, the ones that are still feeling a little bit brave where they're looking for that new IP is broadening. You know, we've spoken in the past about video games now being a, a fertile hunting ground for new IP. We know that Roblox, there's lots of, um, you know, kind of there's elements of Roblox that are being developed for kids IP, you know, um, Adopt Me. Welcome to Bloxburg was brought by, bought by Embracer Group for $100 million, Embracer Group being the ones that bought um, the Tolkien uh, and Lord of the Rings estate. So it feels like they are tapping kind of video games as a, as a rich hunting ground for new franchises. And of course, this week, we've got The Last of Us, which is been, uh, which is an adaptation of a PlayStation, Sony PlayStation game from a few years ago. Uh, you know, finally broken the duck of video game um, adaptations, generally being seen as pretty second rate, but it's getting great reviews. Um, and again, a source of, I guess, pre-existing but new for TV, which is which is feels kind of refreshing, really. And what's the size of the audience for the video game of Last of Us? I'm completely ignorant of that. Kind of- I, I, I know it was super popular. I think it's 10 years old at least, right. um, but has enjoyed popularity, enduring popularity through that. And as we know, video gaming as a business actually is now bigger than video itself in terms of the time spent and also money spent. So, yeah. you know, it, it seems like there's a lot of catching up to do in terms of making video content out of it. And do you think the, so it reminds me a bit of something like Walking Dead that was based on a, on a comic, but the comic was, was relatively niche. Um, the, the audience that it captured as a TV show was kind of like exponentially bigger than the, than the people would have, would have read the comic. But do you think in this example, actually there's a substantial audience that is inherited from the video Mm. Um, for the TV yeah and probably helped actually by things like the Walking Dead franchise because Last of Us is it's a similar pre- premise it's kind of apocalyptic zombie zombie yeah. fest um, so you know even though it is a game that's 10, year, 10 years old and I, I'm sure has a huge existing audience actually probably benefited from the success of something like Walking Dead in terms of the time timing but I think it's it's the audience that it brings but it's also the proof of concept right like not everybody plays video games and that's fine but if you've shown that you've connected a story with people at scale consistently then that's proof of concept right so yes you're definitely going to bring an audience with you but you've you've shown that the IP and the characters and the story connects with people and so telling it in a different medium is is kind of it's not just the audience that comes with it it's it's the fact that you've shown that it, it, it connects I think that's one of the key the key things about it and yeah. like the same with Walking Dead like not everybody read, most people don't read comic books I actually did read the Walking Dead comics because we had a I had, there was like a little reading club started in the office that I was in at the time by a guy who was really into comics and was like you all need to read this and we used to send it around and it was kind of that it was one of those things that like I don't read comics but I read this mm-hmm. um but yeah, I think it's 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 showing that the story and the storytelling connects in that way is the key thing that I you know 
the audience and that part are like the two, like they're both equally important, I think, in terms of the, in terms of yeah. moving the IP to a different platform or a different medium. And I think when it is an existing IP, there are also kind of guardrails on the development, which can be quite useful if you're the producer, which is that, you know, say if the main character's a, a cat, you're not going to find that through the development process, the commissioner says, we'd really like it to be a giraffe and you turn it into a giraffe. Ooh. That's um, a fascinating insight, Andy. I didn't know producers liked guardrails. That's my experience. <laughs> um, whereas, um, whereas if you've got, if you can point to the existing IP, saying you know this fan base might be upset if we turn uh, the cat into a giraffe, uh, maybe it's not such a good idea. That can. But we know the cat works. That's the thing. Like we're yeah. not turning it into a giraffe because the cat works, lads. We've got this video game. It's been going for ten years. So, like, just leave it. The cat's staying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's probably more fluidity of talent now that are willing to work across that genre. I think in years gone by, video and gaming were seen as two separate industries and never the twain shall meet. But actually, you know, now creatives and producers are beginning to actually cross over and think, no, I can make a good story out of this gaming kind of franchise or gaming IP. And, and again, the rise in popularity of gaming, it might be that that producer or that writer is a big gamer, whereas in previous years, they were always quite separate and, and it probably uh, did result in a lot of those relatively poor adaptations. But it feels like the quality is really rising now. And it's, it's an like I said, an exciting and fertile hunting ground for, for that new IP that we do um, crave, or certainly new to, to video and film. Um, in terms of, um, I was just going to make a quick point about Bluey, actually, um, in terms of new, because I, I read... Because uh, we can't have the Kids Media Podcast um, episode and not Bluey. Bluey. Exactly. <laughs> um, but in terms of something that feels fresh and new, and it has heart again, back to our opening discussions about why Phineas and Ferb was so brilliant, um, Bluey has been uh, listed for a Critics', Critics Choice Award. Um, which is amazing, uh, for Best Animated Series and is the only preschool one in the list. So Bob's Burgers is there, uh, Primal from Adult Swim, Harley Quinn, HBO Max, Star Trek Lower Decks from Paramount, uh, Lower De yeah, Lower Decks from Paramount and uh, Undone on Prime Video. What an accolade for Bluey. Yeah. Onto a critic's choice list. I mean, that if that's not a, a testament to the quality of you know what preschool can be stuff can be then it's that so yeah congrats to to the team behind bluey for that i thought that was really great news but just the best cartoons have something for everyone right like that's the whole point it's like and again phineas and ferb like that like you watch it the more you watch it the, the better it gets you know like it, it it needs to have something authentically for you know for everybody in the room i think so yeah, no, good, good on Bluey. We just I put them, just add them to the mantelpiece. Got to maybe need to build a second one. I don't know. And what's really gratifying to think about Bluey's success is we've talked before about, particularly in the preschool space, about that safety first, not particularly distinctive um, kind of style of animation, very CG. Um, it kind of has a cookie cutter feel to it. Whereas Bluey kind of, sort of sits completely in contrast to that. You feel like that is something that is authentic distinctive and yet it's finding a, a really big audience so I think that's kind of really gratifying mm. yeah it is and I think in a way that's going to cause a lot of problems for the cookie cutter CGI businesses that have sprung up in the wake of 
Cocomelon's success, I think it's going to be a tough year for, for Moonbug and for those others that have, have carved, you know, relatively healthy niche on YouTube with that kind of content. You know, Lulu Kids is another big one. But I think, you know, Bluey has come along and really exploded that business model in terms of there isn't a huge amount of it. It hasn't got the massive uh, traction that those have got on YouTube, but it's still managed to to cut through because of its appeal, because of its heart. And actually, you know, again, we've mentioned it before is less, you know, less can be more if it's done really well. Uh, so I think that, uh, yeah, Bluey, particularly if it picks up a Critics' Choice Award, there'll be no stopping it, but it will call into question this proliferation of, of the cookie cutter, almost disposable, dare I say, you know, preschool content that's, that's churned out in high volume on YouTube. I kind of, what I'm interested in looking at there, Joe, is, is, this, is the chain of succession of these, right? So it was Little Baby Bum, um, and then it was Coco Melon. And then little angels kind of come in and I'm kind of fascinated to see how that builds and grows. And just and then once you kind of have three, I, I, it's just trying to get your head around. Well, why does Coco Nana, why, why is there, why is the baton pass? What what, what are the things that happen with little baby bum and Coco Melon? It was a bit more of a like a, it was a bit more of a situational. You've been going for that many years. I think they still, you know, the, the company were running it, you know, it, it sounded like a bit more of an operational baton pass. Whereas with Coco Melon, little angel, you know, I'm just interested to know, well, to see if that happens, first of all, and second of all, then to kind of think about why that might have happened. And, and then, it, again, ideally be able to predict what might happen next or something like that. Because, you know, it's there is there definitely is trends in that kind of area. You know, Baby Shark was another one was just huge years ago and obviously still around, but like it's not as hot as it is. And everybody's quite happy about that. <laughs> On the back of um, on the back of Baby Shark, Pink Fong have started uh, Baby Baby Finn, I think it's called, yeah. <laughs> which is another one of their YouTube channels that's centered around a family with a baby. I, I did put a, a LinkedIn post on a few weeks ago. They're virtually indistinguishable. There's there's the Coco Melon family, there's uh, the Lulu Kids family, and then there's the Baby Finn family, and I struggle to tell them apart. You know. How how is that baton passed, and how is there a succession really when it feels like there's plenty in just one of those channels, but they keep springing up? So yeah, those kind of formats, I do feel like they're ripe for for being taken over by some AI um, program generation because oh. yeah, it, it, it's literally just kind of mixing and matching stuff. It won't be yeah. long before that that could be generated by AI very easily. <laughs> That's yeah. a whole other episode of the podcast. <laughs> I mean, here's a question for you guys. If, if somebody was coming to the market with a completely original animated series, what's the best way for them to kind of to get that out there and make it a hit? What, do you, what would your advice be? Oh, gosh. I mean... It's so incredibly hard. It's, you know, YouTube is not the panacea that it once was. It's it's increasingly difficult to cut through on YouTube. You know, you need a lot of media spend to give yourself a runway in order to get big enough to hopefully pick up the algorithmic and the organic growth. So it's harder and harder to, to, to scale on YouTube. There's less and less money from commissioners and, and, and platforms around to get your content made and on there. You know, it's 
it is tricky. You, you, you know, Roblox, I've spoken a lot about Roblox and its potential to, to grow new franchise brands for kids in conjunction with those other platforms. Because again, I don't think you can launch a new IP on one platform alone for kids these days. It has to have a multi-platform footprint from um, day one. But it, you know, it is, it's tricky because of the noise, because there is just so much there, which is why then I think, you know, when we're at saturation, you have to start looking at standout coming from areas such as quality, heart, you know, it having something for everyone, you know, like Phineas and Ferb did, like Bluey does. They were two shows where the parents of the kids that were watching them would sit down with a cup of tea and watch them because it 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 connected. And that's that's the thing. You've got to find the way to connect. And it, it's not necessarily platform led. I think we're coming through to a, a period where it's going to be the content that is the connection or the people. Again, we go back to influencers, you know, Mr. Beast has nailed connection, Guillermo del Toro. People are beginning to say, I like Guillermo del Toro rather than the movies he's made. So it's it's connecting with people and, and creators and content. Yeah, it's kind of an excruciating situation, isn't it? Because it's like, I mean, the, the, the key thing is, is is getting the right people on board, like getting, you know, getting the right co-producers, getting the right commissioners in, you know, involved. And then after that, you know, if you've got a new idea, it's, it's your natural inclination is to get it happening, to make it happen at any cost. But if you make it happen at any cost and you sign away rights for managing the YouTube footprint or rights for managing a Roblox footprint or whatever, then you need to be depending on a partner who's going to um, fill that gap for you, which, you know, mm. if, you know, if it's not an in-house original is not actually that lightly. So then you have to hold back on them. So then you have to negotiate harder to hold on to those and kind of think about finding budget to do them and execute them. Mm. Um, because, you know, if, if, if this is your best idea and you think this is really got it, if it doesn't have those things, it'll just, it'll recess to the back. And I know some great shows could easily come to mind that aren't mm. as big as I think they should be because I think they're really good shows. And, I, I can, it's, it's, there's a very, I would point to very obvious reasons being YouTube footprint is limited, engagement with the audience is limited, um, you know, and, and that's held them back and, 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 you know, okay, well, maybe creators got paid and everyone was happy, everybody walked away and that was fine and, and they don't need it to be bluey. But, you know, at the same time, it's that untapped potential in, in a really good show, I think is, I just, I, it breaks my heart, breaks my little heart. <laughs> it does, it does have the question that, you know, we talk about YouTube and, you know, Netflix as well with this unprecedented choice, this sea of content that floods towards you when you open up either platform. Um, and again, I've been doing a lot of reading about how younger demographics and younger generations, we're beginning to see niches, you know, niching down. This is what it's about. And then you think of Crunchyroll and how well Crunchyroll's done in its niche. And it's known for, for, for owning that niche. So I do wonder whether we'll see more niche platforms coming out of this kind of era where 
we've had this great abundance of choice that's almost now led to choice paralysis in in some occasions or a lot of kind of bland content and and we'll see kind of platforms congregating around niche interests and, and kind of these identities that Gen Z particularly are really keen on stating and owning. So, you know, I think that's probably, well, that would be my guess as to kind of how that cut through will be aided in the future is, you know, content will be congregated and and, and it will coalesce around kind of niches and, and new platforms that facilitate that will spring up. That's interesting because it also feeds into fan engagement, those niche mm-hmm. niches. So I think you talk about Crunchyroll, that that's, that's kind of as much about the fan base as it is about the content in some respect. Mm, yeah. And it's back to, back to your point about the curator. Maybe the, cura- the curator moment, Emily, is going to come. You know, we've got the... How do you monetize it, Joe, though? How do you monetize it? That's the key thing I want to know. It's like, how do I monetize not making any money, not making any content, but just pointing people to the right place for it as a <laughs> uh, model? There'll be a way yeah. to do it. that's where I'm stuck but um yeah I hear you on niche the thing for me on niche is I think niche exists at its you know really at its best in in social platforms and I think you know okay and YouTube is not the best in class example but it's definitely an example like there's lots of niches on, on YouTube you know you can get on a train YouTube, which I'm on uh, at the moment a lot with my three-year-old just watching videos of trains in various parts of the world, live just shot and their trains just going by and that's fine. So there's, and there's lots of them. Um, you know, uh, but YouTube is such an old platform, so it, 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 it has had to learn and adapt, you know, alongside it. TikTok is obviously the obvious place of, you know, book talk, pimple popper talk. I mean, all of the talks, like, you know, they're, they're sublime and ridiculous. But, um, you know, I think that social element to me is the key thing that, that connects niches and finds niches and allows niches to kind of proliferate. And that is missing from streaming platforms. I think that is something that they, that you know, that I don't think the algorithms of streaming are getting right. They're not leaning on the social. Um, I don't know how you do that. I don't know, like, you know, I, I don't have an answer to the technical side of, you know, trying to hook up your whatever. And they always ask for your Facebook or your Google and like mm-hmm. your Go- Facebook, well, your Google, your Gmail doesn't really know much about you. And, you know, like your your Facebook's only going to know so much because people, most people aren't on it these days. Trying to find that connection, I think, is a key thing that's missing for streaming platforms. They don't have, you know, they might have niche content there, but developing a niche is something different. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic, you know, just thinking whilst I was listening to you speak, you know, the the very often with preschool and kids content, when you're watching it as a parent and the kids are young, actually, you would love another parent in the room to speak to, you know, even if it's just like, what on earth is this? You know, how many parents would have gone, Who, who's Maka Packer and Iggle Piggle? What is this that my child's watching? But, you know, if there is some way that those streamers could create almost a real-time community element to it. Probably not difficult to do, you know, a huge telegram group, but, you know, about what is Eagle Piggle, actually. You know, that could be a really compelling way to to bring your audience t- together almost real-time and start building. That's an idea that we need to develop as a side hustle. 
Yeah, yeah. I do think there is that Eagle Pizzle community, Joe, but I think it's on Reddit and I don't think it's <laughs> parents as much as it is high, high college students uh, debating the existentialism of that character. <laughs> Probably. Well, I mean, joking aside, I did hear that... Uh, Bluey has a big fan base amongst students as well. That um, yeah. Yeah. I could w- see that. Watch it in a in a haze of whatever they do. <laughs> very comforting. It's very comforting. Oh well, that's yeah. Been a nice first podcast back for uh, January when normally my grey matter is not firing on all cylinders. <laughs> yeah, great. Nice to see you both. Great, well thanks very much for listening Uh, Be sure to subscribe to the podcast So you don't miss an episode Imagine that Uh, And we'll be back again shortly With with another Kids Media podcast Thanks very much Thanks everyone